All right, so we're, if you're in Matthew 2, we're going to look beginning in verse 1. We're going to read this and, and stop and talk about it along the way. So verse 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now let's stop just for a moment, and I want to help you understand what's going on here. Now these wise men were most likely, obviously they're from the east, they're most likely from Persia, uh, modern-day Iran, and they um, had had a lot of interaction with Jewish people because 600 years earlier, um, they, their kingdom had defeated Israel and had taken many of their top um, young uh, scholars and, and important people and brought them to Persia and interacted with them. And so 600 years before what we're reading now, kind of in the time of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all those kind of people, um, a lot of Jewish people had been in Persia. And so scholars say what most likely happened is the Jewish people there told their stories there about and read their scriptures about the promised Messiah who was going to come. And so 600 years later, these wise men, probably astronomers, philosophers, they were watching the skies and they see a star and they recognize that as a sign of the promised Messiah being born and they come looking for Jesus. Look at verse 3. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Now, you might ask yourself, why would Herod be disturbed at this? Herod is king of the Jews. Now, Rome actually ruled the region, but they let Herod, who was a Jew, rule in Jerusalem and over his people. And why would Herod, king of the people who've been waiting for the Messiah, why would he be disturbed? And why would the Jewish people who in, there in Jerusalem, why would they have been disturbed? Well, imagine if you go to work tomorrow, right, and someone shows up and says, oh, I'm the new, and then they say whatever your job title is, right? They're there to replace you. <laughs> and would you feel a little bit threatened? I mean, Herod was king of the Jews. And here could these men show up and say, we're looking for the newborn king of the Jews. Now, some, some people might be okay with that, but Herod um, was a very insecure, power-hungry, um, cruel ruler. In fact, he had had his own wife and her two brothers executed because he thought they were plotting to overthrow him. He had been married nine different times just trying to secure political power. So when he hears that there's a newborn king of the Jews, he thinks, I'm about to be replaced, and I'm not giving up my throne. And so he's disturbed. He doesn't want anybody else on the throne but him. Now, you might ask, why were the people in Jerusalem disturbed? Because if Herod wasn't happy, nobody was happy, right? And that day and age and the way he ruled, if he was unhappy, he could make everybody in Jerusalem unhappy. They feared him. And so he's not happy about this, and it makes everyone around him nervous and disturbed also. Look at verse 4. So Herod called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And then they quote this prophecy, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. And so Herod meets with the religious leaders, the priests, who have much of what we call the Old Testament, their scriptures memorized. They knew these prophecies. And he says, hey, I'm hearing that the Messiah has been born, the one everybody's been waiting for. Um, where is he supposed to be born? And these religious leaders who know the prophecies, 
say he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. But think about what's, what's going on here. These religious leaders had so much scripture and so many prophecies memorized. They knew where the Messiah was supposed to be born. In fact, at this moment, they're about five miles probably from where Jesus is, the one they've been waiting for. But they answer Herod's question, and then they go on. <laughs> they don't even go and look for the Messiah. He's right there. He's nearby. He's what they've been waiting for. He's what they've been looking for, and they're missing it. Some of you may have heard, and I just thought about this this morning related to this. Some of you may have heard this week we had some bats in the worship center. Anybody hear that? I thought we might have some extra people in here from the worship center today after they heard that there were, there were some bats in there Thursday evening, and we had an important activity going on, it was, and a few of them were buzzing around, and, and I thought Ronnie, was, our lead pastor, was going to have a heart attack, and uh, we were trying to get them out, and uh, so I called and thankfully found these guys in Van Buren that relocate bats, and they um, met me um, about 6.45 in the morning, uh, the next day, Friday morning, over in the worship center because we had, again, another important activity in there Friday that we did not want bats in there for. And so I met these guys, and I let them in the front doors there in the parking lot where the white cross is. And I said, I'm going to be in here studying in the conference room, but let me know if you need me. Let me know if you find any bats. I didn't know if they'd find any or not because I knew at least two had flown out the doors the night before, but others had said they'd seen more in there. Not five minutes after I sat down to start studying, one of the guys comes to me and says, we found the first one. And I was like, oh, where is it? And I'm expecting it to be way up in the ceiling in the worship center, back in the baptistry, maybe in an attic or something. He's like, oh, it's right here. And he points to about five feet from where I was standing when I let him in the door. <laughs> um, the thing was the same color as the brick. And even with the lights on, that bat was just sitting there in the corner nice and still. And he just climbed up on a ladder, just grabbed it with some gloves and put it in a bucket. And they found three more just like that. I mean, that thing was just right there. I was so close. I mean, I almost could have reached out and touched it and I missed it. These these religious leaders have been waiting. They've been looking for the Messiah. They're so close, and they totally miss him. They totally miss him. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 7. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And listen to what he says. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Does anybody pick up on a little bit of a lie here? <laughs> Herod is not wanting to go and worship Jesus. As we know from later in the story, he actually wants to kill him. Look at verse 9. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And just a quick side note here, this is not the same night that we read about in Luke chapter 2 when the shepherds went. This is sometime after that when Jesus had been moved from the manger and probably was in a house or something like that. It's not the exact same night. Um, verse 10, so when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So think about this. These men, while the other Jewish people who've been waiting for the Messiah are either trying to kill him or totally ignoring him, here are these men that didn't necessarily grow up with a great religious background, but they've heard the promises, they've heard the prophecies, and they come looking for Jesus. And when they find him, they bow before him and they worship him. And they joyfully give him gifts. Look at verse 12. When it 
It was time to leave. They returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. You know, in the, these last few verses, we hear a part of the Christmas story that's maybe not what I'd call family-friendly, right? When I was a kid growing up in the school I was in, we always had Christmas plays, and the fifth graders always did the Christmas story, Luke 2. I don't remember ever coming to Matthew 2. I, we did have the wise men. We had part of Matthew 2, but I don't remember them ever talking about this part where Herod goes out and has all these babies, all these young children executed because he was so dead set on staying on, on the throne and removing any threats. So in this story, Herod is the villain. <laughs> He's the Darth Vader. He's the Lex Luthor, but way worse than any of those guys. He is the villain. Now, I want to come back to the question I asked you earlier, which character are you? In other words, which is most like you and your response to Jesus right now? And I know some of you are like, hey, I'm not killing babies. That's not what I'm saying. But let's stop for a moment and let's just go back and let's talk about these three different main characters. I want you to ask yourself, which of these is most like my response to Jesus? First of all, are you like Herod opposing Jesus? Again, I'm not saying anybody here has tried to kill children or anything like that, but do you see Jesus as a threat to your throne. And a lot of you are like, I don't have a throne. Yeah, we, we all have one. Somebody's ruling your life. Most of us, it's probably us, right? We, we're king, we're queen. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. We've probably seen that on display more this last year than ever before. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I rule my life. We're, we're all like that. I mean, we're all, it's, 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 it's born into us, right? And think about it, Jesus comes as the Messiah, as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords, and says, I'm here to save you, but for you to be saved, you've got to believe in me, and you've got to believe in me, not just as Savior, saving you from your sins, but also as Lord, boss, king. When Jesus comes into our life, he's not saying, hey, I'm just here so you can sign up for a ticket to heaven. Now, he's saying, I'm here to save you from your sin, to save you from hell, to take you to heaven. But if you're really saved, you're going to make me Lord. You're going to make me the boss of your life. In other words, when we're really saved, we will step off the throne of our lives and we will say, Jesus, you're on the throne. You're the Lord. You're the boss. And I remember growing up, I would see bumper stickers that said, God is my co-pilot. Listen, if God is your co-pilot, switch seats. He's not the co-pilot. He's the pilot. He should be in charge. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, as Jesus first began to preach, once he was an adult, he was 30 years old, he began to preach, 
he, says, he began to preach by saying this, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Sometimes we're really good at declaring and believing the good news, which is we are sinners who can be saved by God's grace and his mercy and through Jesus. But sometimes we forget that first part, and it's what he said first, repent of your sins. It's saying we turn from our way and turn to God's way. We let him be the boss of our life. He decides what's right and wrong, not us. He decides what our life's about, not us. That's what true salvation looks like. It's not saying we've got to do all these good things to earn our way to heaven. It's not saying you have to do these good things to earn anything. It's just saying if you've really been saved by grace and it's a free gift and the Holy Spirit lives in you, then you're called to put Jesus on the throne. So the question this morning is, how much are you like Herod? I think all of us to some degree would say, if we're honest, man, I do push Jesus off the throne. If I'm honest, I look back at my life right now and this last week's schedule and where my money and resources and talent and time and all is gone, it's been all about me, 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 not God, not Jesus. So I'll, question, I'll ask you this morning before we move on to look at the next character to consider, have you trusted in Jesus for salvation? And have you really made him Lord of your life? Have you really done what he said there in Mark 1.15, repent and believe? Because if we really believe, we will repent. We'll turn from our ways to his ways. The next person to consider you might be like are the priests. Are you like the priests, not opposing Jesus, but ignoring Jesus, right? What did they do? Nothing. <laughs> and that's the problem. They, they knew the prophecies. They knew the scriptures. From what Herod had told them, Jesus was five miles away in Bethlehem, and they did nothing. My question today, is this you? You know, we can know all about Jesus. We can know all about the Christmas story. I mean, we can sing Christmas carols that declare he's the newborn king, and yet not really have him as the king in our life, not really have trusted him to save us. There are people who are all about Christmas and don't even realize the symbols that are around them. And you look at a Christmas tree and you see that they're, they're made of evergreens that are, you know, that are alive year-round. And they don't realize that can point to Jesus and eternal life. They don't think about the lights being on it, representing the light of the world, Jesus' is light of the world. They sing all these songs not realizing the symbolism and the truth in them. Even something like mistletoe, we've turned into this little kissing thing. But it actually is pointing to how God and man are reconciled. Christian missionaries used that um, back in Europe hundreds of years ago to, to tell the people about Jesus and how he came to reconcile us to man. They had this, this pagan religion of when you stepped under mistletoe, you had to reconcile with your enemy. They said, that's what Jesus came to do. That's the good news of Christmas. He came to reconcile us to God. We were his enemies, and he loved us, and he came to die for us to save us. You know, Jesus gave us a warning in Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23. Let me read this to you. He's talking about Judgment Day, right? Something that is in the future. We're looking at a lot of stuff in the past, but this is still to come. And he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil 
doers. Maybe some of the scariest verses in the Bible because Jesus is telling us, just as he told the crowds 2,000 years ago, that there are going to be people who are very religious. There are going to be people who know Scripture, who have performed religious acts, who know about Jesus but don't know Jesus. So what I'm asking you this morning, are you like the priests and you know all about Jesus but you don't really know him? You're kind of ignoring him, you're not loving him, you're not surrendering your life to him, you're just, you know about him. There's a lot of religious people that know about Jesus and don't know Jesus. There's a lot of people who love Christmas and they know the Christmas story. They know about him, but they don't know him. And Jesus says on judgment day, there's going to be very religious people that he's going to say, the problem is you knew about me, you didn't know me. You missed heaven by 18 inches, the distance from your mind to your heart. You know it up here, but you don't know me here. Do you know Jesus? Or are you ignoring him like the priest? You just kind of know about him. And then finally, here's who we all hope we're like. Are you like the wise men seeking Jesus? Again, these aren't your typical religious people, but they knew the promises and they sought Jesus. In John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, it says, Jesus came to that which was his own. He came to his own people, the Israelites, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, people like this, the the wise men, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. These wise men knew about Jesus, but then they went and found him and bowed before him and worshiped him and knew Jesus, not just about him. So today, are you like Herod, opposing, resisting Jesus? Man, I don't want anything to do with him. Are you like the priests? They're like, hey, I know about him, but if I'm honest, I don't really know him. I've not acted toward him as I should. Or maybe you're like the wise men. I pray we're all like the wise men, and we can say, man, I, I've sought Jesus. I believe in him. I've surrendered to him. I've trusted him. I'm worshiping him. We're not done yet, but I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes just briefly. We don't do that this often in here, but I've prayed about it and felt that God was leading me to give you this opportunity this morning. You may be here this morning saying, I, if I'm honest, I don't know that I've trusted in Jesus for salvation. Maybe you've been resisting him. Maybe you've just been putting it off. But I want to give you the opportunity this morning to pray a prayer, to trust in him, if that's what you want to do this morning. So with your heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're sure that you're a believer, just pray for those around you. But if you want to pray this morning and trust in Jesus for salvation. Not just a ticket to heaven, but saying, I want to trust him to save me, and I want to repent of my ways and follow him and make him Lord. You can pray a prayer something like this there just quietly to him where you sit. Just saying, God, I admit that I am a sinner, and I cannot save myself. But I believe Jesus lived the perfect life I could never live and died for my sins so I wouldn't have to. And he rose from the dead, defeating death and proving everything he said was true. I believe this, God. And today I trust Jesus to save me and I commit to follow him as Lord. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed,
I just want to encourage you in this. If you prayed that prayer, I hope you meant business. And if you did mean business, if you are serious about it, I want to encourage you to stay after church and talk with me or one of our other leaders or contact us this week. If you really sincerely trust in Jesus for salvation, you will begin to follow him, and we want to help you do that. All right, you can look back up here. You know, I mentioned the Christmas plays at my grade school growing up. Um, when we were in second grade, I remember vividly us having this play that was all, most of us were Christmas trees, but there was, there was one good guy and one bad guy, and the bad guy, can you guess who it was? He was the lumberjack. <laughs> we're all Christmas trees. He was the lumberjack. And my friend Shane um, so wanted to be the good guy. I'm trying to remember. I can't remember if it was an angel or what it was, but there was some kind of good guy, and he so wanted to be that. I was, I was happy to be a tree and blend in. I just wanted to be in the background. But Shane so wanted to be the hero, and guess what he got picked to be? He got picked to be the lumberjack. And I just remember him so hating that. And part of it is because he liked this other girl in second grade, and his romantic rival, who also liked this girl, got to be the good guy. And he's like, man, she's going to see him as the good guy and me as the bad guy. It was great second grade drama. So, <laughs> listen, he got cast as the bad guy. Here's the good news for me and you. Right? We, we get to cast ourselves in this story. You can choose. Am I going to be Herod resisting Jesus? Am I going to be the, the priest ignoring Jesus? Or am I going to be the wise men really seeking him. And my prayer this morning is that we all respond like the wise men. And here's what I want to do in our last few minutes together. Look back in Matthew 2, look at verses 10 and 11 at how the wise men responded. And let's strive to respond in the same way. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let's just look at these verses really quickly. First of all, they were filled with joy. Are you filled with joy? I mean, I know we all have good days and bad days. I'm not talking about happiness because happiness is kind of based on what happens to you. I'm talking about true joy that comes from knowing you're saved and adopted into God's family. You and I, if we'll really, like the wise men, recognize Jesus for who he is, man, we'll be so filled with joy because he saved us by his grace, by his mercy. And that's a gift filled with joy. That's how we should respond this morning as we think about how Jesus came to save us. It says they entered the house or they drew near to Jesus. All of us, we should be drawing near to Jesus. You know, coming to church helps us do that. I commend all of you for being here today. This is a great way to draw near to Jesus, to hear his word. But I want to encourage you to go further. This Christmas season, go further. But beyond Christmas, from here on out, the rest of your life, go further. Draw near to Jesus. Make time to be in his word. Make time to pray to him. Make sure you're a part of a small group and discipleship where you can draw near to Jesus through the church which he created. Just as the wise men drew near to Jesus, we should too. Look, they, it says they bowed down. Once again, here's this picture of making him king and not us. Today, if you've trusted him for salvation, if you're a true believer, you're a Christian, are you bowing down and making him Lord and King? You know, Martin Luther famously said that all of life is repentance, right? So when we're saved, on that day we're saved, we repent and we make Jesus King. But you know what we have to do every day after that? Every day I've got to get up and say, Jesus, you're King and I'm not. Because every day my sinful heart's trying to reclaim the throne. 
And every day I got to say, Jesus, you're king and I'm not. We bow before him. That's how we should respond, just as the wise men did. It says they worshiped him. Well, again, I want to encourage you to worship Jesus. We're, we've done that this morning. We're going to do that Christmas Eve, but you know what? We can do that every Sunday. We can do that every day in our personal time with him, and I want to encourage you to do that. And then notice there that they gave him gifts. How do we give gifts to Jesus? Do you have any gold or frankincense laying around that you could give him, right? I mean, one of the great verses in the Bible that talks about how we give to Jesus is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Listen to what it says. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. And listen to why he says we should do that, because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. You and I are encouraged by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 1 to, to give God our lives, to give him everything. Not because we're trying to earn something, but as it says there, because of all he's done for you. Again, when we think about how Jesus came and left heaven to live a life here for 33 years, to die on the cross in our place, to raise from the grave, to save us. When we think about all that he did, all that he gave up, all that he suffered, should lead us to want to worship him by singing to him, by praying, by studying his word, all those things, but also by giving him our lives daily, saying, God, this is your life. Jesus, this is your life. Take it and use it for your purposes and your glory.